Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. What is a sanctuary to you? What does it mean to be home? What does it take to achieve that feeling of being loved unconditionally in a place? How important are those feelings for every human being? Who gets to feel like that in this world and who doesn't? Why do some have it and some don't? These questions are my interpretation of some of the topics discussed in a new book by Zenju Earthlin Manuel. The book, Sanctuary, A Meditation on Home, Homelessness, and Belonging, is a beautiful, emotional, uplifting, and heartbreaking work grounded in one person's personal and family history, but also the history of the United States and issues grappled with in advanced societies around the world. Zenju Sensei and I spoke on the eve of a racist rally in Washington, D.C. that ultimately fizzled in failure. You'll hear my concern in the episode about this rally, but Zenju Sensei conveyed hope and expresses why she's hopeful for us. I'm grateful to her for having this conversation with me. So my guest today is Zenju Earthlin Manuel, Zenju Sensei is an author, Zen priest, teacher, divine seer, artist, and drum medicine woman. Her work has been featured in Essence Magazine, CNN, CBS News, KPFA Radio, Buddha Dharma, and Lion's Roar. She holds an MA from UCLA and a PhD in Transformative Learning from California Institute of Integral Studies. She spoke to me from Green Gulch Farm, a Zen practice center within the San Francisco Zen Center. She is the author of Sanctuary, a meditation on home, homelessness, and belonging out now from Wisdom Publications. You can find her online at zenju.org, where she also has three episodes published of her own podcast entitled Teachings of the Hollow Bones. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and then check out Zenju Sensei's wonderful new book and her podcast. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I'm here today with my guest, Zenju Earthland Manuel. And she has a new book out called Sanctuary, and we're going to talk about that today. Um, Zenju Sensei, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, 
welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Can you spend a moment introducing yourself a little bit to the audience so they kind of have a sense of your story? Okay. Um, I am originally from Los Angeles, California, and but I've been up in the Bay Area for a very, very long time. <laughs> and uh, right now I am uh, practicing here as a teacher at Green Gulch Zen Center. So I'm an ordained Zen Buddhist priest. Sometimes I put Buddhism around because people don't know what Zen is. <laughs> so um, that's uh, how I've been expressing my life in the last uh, 17 years. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And you have several books out, right? What are some of the titles of your books so the audience can maybe get a sense of those? Well, the, um, well, the one we're going to be talking about today is Sanctuary, um, a meditation on home, homelessness, and belonging. Right before that book uh, was The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. And um, so far, that's kind of one of the most popular books because it's been out a little while, about three years. And, um, you know, I also compiled a book for my teacher, which I must speak for her because she is now uh, deceased. And so it's the book called Seeds for a Boundless Life. And um, basically, I put that book together and put her name on it. But, it, were, it you know, those are her teachings. Wonderful. Um so the first thing I want to talk to you about is Green Gulch Farm. And uh, I have an interest in the San Francisco Zen Center. The center comes up a lot in several of my conversations and my reading a lot over the last few years because it's such a historically important place for American Zen being the first monastic Zen training center outside of Japan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is your life like on the farm? Well, um <laughs> So I came here as a teacher, so I never worked on the farm. (laughs) You know, um, students who are just starting out in their practice year one, year two, or, you know, they're they're the ones who use the farm as their work practice. So every uh, Zen center is a tri-temple organization. And so we have the city center, which is in, uh, it's in San Francisco. It's an urban center where you'll find more people who are working or going to school will study there. And then there's Green Gulch um, Farm, and that's just where people who are interested in working on the farm are doing things a little bit different than what they would do in the city. And then we have Tassajara Zen Center um, down in Jamesburg, or just below Jamesburg in the Los Padres Forest. And that is our probably our most monastic contained uh, practice in the forest. And so, yeah. When did you find Zen Center? Um, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I actually discovered it, like I saw the sign on the building um, when I moved to San Francisco from Los Angeles in my 20s. And I said I would go in there one day. And I ended up uh, coming, just like I said, but interesting, not the way I thought. I came 20 years later and um, and was interested in uh, this practice that appeared to be more of the body as opposed to the mind. And so um, I I didn't get it. I didn't understand it at all. (laughs) But I could feel the uh, impact on my life. Wonderful. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the lineage of Zen Center, Uh, maybe and talk a little bit about who your teacher was as well? Okay, the lineage starts with uh, Suzuki Roshi, Shunru, 
Suzuki Roshi, who I've never met. Um, he died 12 years into starting the organization. And so um, then my lineage goes to uh, um, Mel Weitzman, Sojun Mel Weitzman, who was my teacher's teacher, my teacher, Zenke Blanche Hartman. And she just passed um, uh, two years ago. When did you receive your uh, transmission? Okay, the transmission for me happened in 2000 and uh, I think it's 16, 17. I can't quite remember. Let's see, where are we? 18, so 16. Yeah, so um, transmission is the last in a last thing of part of the training you get. And that is when you're able to offer um, uh, vows to anyone who wants to take lay vows or be ordained. And so before that, so I was ordained in 2006. So as you see, it takes about 10 to 15 years to be completely Dharma transmitted in the Zen tradition. Do you have any students working underneath you that are working towards transmission under you? Um, <laughs> I, you know, because I just started in 2016, I don't, I do, I don't have students headed toward priesthood yet. Or if they're interested in that, I do have three people who took lay vows with me. Very cool. Mm -hmm. um, so why do you think that, so you're in a very, very important center, as I mentioned, like the historical significance of Zen Center and Green Gulch and Tassajara in American Zen is really important. Um, how does the Zen Center history um, matter to you with regards to your own practice? Do you see like the, the gravity of the place um, as being important for American Buddhism and American Zen? Well, I think what Zen Center offers, which most sinners uh, cannot, and that is um, a full range of residential practice and work practice and um, the number of people that are involved and the number of teachers are definitely a resource. So um, outside of that, it's very difficult to get a complete training. Some people are... Um, sent to Zen Center from other states by their teachers so that they can train. I also even, you know, bring my own students here to sit uh, long retreats because I can't mount those on my own, you know. Um, so it, it definitely is a place in which you can, we can um, train together. And um, but also it's a place in which a variety of people um, can come and, and, and look at what is life in the Dharma based on um, who you are, you know, as, as a person, not just an American, but um, a person that is interested in, um, you know, transformation, healing, well-being, and meeting one's own heart. Fantastic. Um, I want to get into your book, Sanctuary, A Meditation on Home, Homelessness, and Belonging, which I just finished the other day, and I really, really liked it. When I picked up the book, I think that I was expecting it uh, to be slightly more about having achieved sanctuary, like um, for like a long, long time, and less about the journey towards it. So it kind of was a pleasant surprise, and that it was totally different than I was expecting. What does the concept of sanctuary mean to you? Because this is a very important crux in the book. Yes. So sanctuary is, to me, an experience of life, and everything is. So even in my other book on race, sexuality, and gender, I give no uh, antidote or formula or, you know, a 
here's how to achieve it, achieve freedom or liberation, uh, how to be free from oppression, but whether to help people through the journey of life. And that's what the practice is about. It's not about this is how you do it. And any book that says that um, would be limiting in your exploration. You know, so sanctuary is to me that place in which you seek when you don't feel you belong where you are. You don't feel at home. You don't feel yourself uh, as a person. You don't, um, you can't express yourself fully. And so you may seek sanctuary um, within the society, within a community, even within our family, we do that. We might seek sanctuary in our bedroom when we're 16, you know, or something Mm -hmm. like that. (laughs) You know, we find that place that feels like we can be who we are and it's ours and it feels familiar. It has um, things in it that help us to uh, stimulate and excite our lives. So because of that and because sanctuary, I think, comes from within, it is a lifetime practice. I can't tell you how to come to sanctuary, but we can talk about your journey to it uh, together and see what that means uh, in your life, my life, and our lives together. And there are a lot of impediments to feeling like you're in sanctuary. Like you can have a feeling of sanctuary one minute and then something can happen and there can be like a slight or a a confrontation that can totally uh, derail your sense of sanctuary at a moment's notice. That's right. So, you know, the thing about sanctuary and home and family and community, there's one element that's consistent in every single one of those, uh, you know, containers. And that is what? That there are people in each one of them. And so we still um, enact out uh, some of our human conditioning. Um, So hopefully in sanctuary, even though the same things might come up for you, you're able to um, expose yourself or feel okay to share your story because you are in sanctuary and you feel more comfortable there to share it with people. But it doesn't mean it's a utopia. There is no utopia uh, on the planet and in this life um, that you can create one maybe in your mind, but the actuality of the, our relative lived experience, something's going to come in there and say, boo. And that really is disappointing people. When they create sanctuary, they know they think they're there and they go, yes. And then, the, then boom, it, it doesn't last. And that is the dilemma of our human condition, that nothing, nothing lasts. So, yeah. There's a section in the book that I latched onto really hard. So I just moved from Missouri to Buffalo, New York. And in between closing on my house in Missouri and closing on my new home in Buffalo, we had three weeks of transient couch living with four animals and a four-year-old. And the the displacement was so jarring and painful that I was just in, I was connected deeply to your moment where you wrote in 2013 about your phase of serial homelessness and being bounced yes. from place to place in California. Mm-hmm. So this feeling of homelessness seems to go way farther back in your story than just 2013, though. Can you yeah. pinpoint the time when you realize this theme of homelessness as a part of your life's story? Well, I actually think it's very recent <laughs> that I began to see it as a journey because it kept happening and happening. And then once I saw it, I began to see that there is truly a historical beginning to all of our homelessnesses. You know, as uh, our people's, you know, um, massacre, Holocaust, slavery, 
refugee camps and all kinds of things are in all of our histories. And so it's, I think it's part of life, this experience of moving from place to place. And I think just recently for me, I would even say 2013, as you named that, that year, that's what I began to see. Oh, this is one of the experiences of life and that there is no permanent home and that in that way that's outside you know, of me. And so no matter if I'm on a couch or wherever I am, that, that I have to, um, I'm, I think I was being taught in all these uh, experiences to bring that in, to find home within myself. And that means to be connected to the earth. That didn't mean me to be, oh, I feel good by myself. It means to be connected to something that's of the earth and something of myself, not, not a particular house or who I live with or where I live. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's this ever-present theme in the book uh, about oppression and the violent history of this country just running through the book and the story. And the search for sanctuary seems to like flow parallel to these histories that go yes. back centuries. Yes. So there's something happening tomorrow in our country. It's the one-year anniversary of the Charlottesville riot, and tomorrow is the second incarnation of this March for Hatred and it seems like the nation is finally acknowledging some unacknowledged realities that we've been repressing for a long, long time. Do you see, like right now, as pivotal for the United States with regards to this nation being like a true sanctuary for all people is like now the, a tipping point? I, yes, I really do believe that it is, that everything is being exposed. And with the uprise of, of the president that we have, um, in one way, of course, I was very upset. In another way, I was very excited because I thought now we would begin to uh, deal with these things we've been sweeping under the rug and um, be able to look and see uh, what has um, been there all along. And now we can talk about it. I mean, be upset about it, rage about it, whatever it is we need to do, we, it, it needs to come out. And so this country as sanctuary, I think, we are, we're getting it, what we need to do to feel safe in this country. And I'm already very excited about some of the people that are being voted in in other states already, you know. So I said, yes, I knew this would happen. That's why we needed, you know, that kind of just loud disregard, you know, so that we could really, you know, meet, you know, uh, what we needed to do and who we needed to help instead of just blindly always helping the person who went to law school and then they, you know, then they, you know, did something in their city and then, but, you know, I love it. And I love that the young people are involved. So you you're, know. so you're hopeful. Yes. Yes. I, I, I see it, you know, and we're going to suffer <laughs> and we're suffering. Yeah. We're suffering and we're going to suffer maybe more. Um, and, um, but sometimes I think the, you know, how when we take medicine, the bad part sometimes is in the beginning and then eventually, you know, it starts to work. And so it may be a long haul. And so that's where our, our, our spirituality comes in or our connection to something of the earth other than just what's, you know, you know, slapping us back and forth from place to place. We have to be rooted somewhere. And then even when we're rooted, it can be upgrounded, right? A tree can be taken out of the ground by just a big storm, right? So we have to be prepared for that. And that's what we're in now, you know, so. What do you think that some of our um, 
goals should be regarding like immigration uh, discussions in our country today. Like how does this notion of sanctuary, which has been so important in our history for generations, Mm -hmm. um, how does this matter today for the immigration discussions happening? Right. So we know the sanctuary movement is very old, you know, where um, people who were were not accepted into society were uh, given sanctuary and and given homes. I think even back to uh, Jesus' days, I think they were looking for, you know, who has the Son of God, and they had to put things on their door to, you know, keep people from (laughs) taking home. So, you know, there's these stories that go back. We're just repeating them in some way, some way. But for the immigrant movement, it's really important that we get the whole story. The whole story is not out. So because it's contorted. Uh, The story is um, focused only on those who are black and brown, whereas the largest uh, group of immigrants in this country are Russian and white. And so we don't know that because we're not talking about that story. The story is skewed. And so they can skew it toward black and brown and make black and brown the object of disregard and filth then um, it worked, then the immigration, you know, process, ICE, and all of these things work. But if the whole story, the whole historical story, and also, you know, even in biblical times, <laughs> so I say you want to talk about the Bible, the whole, histor- is, whole historical story is um, this whole demonizing of a group of people, and to look at that as a society, and then in, in that way, if we are um, able to start uh, looking at that that demonization if we know the whole story about um, immigration in this country. And also to know that uh, people of African descent, African Americans, uh, did not immigrate. We did not immigrate. We were taken out of our country, you know, taken out of our continent, rather, and brought here. That's not immigration. That's something else. Maybe some of us immigrated from the South to the North in our country, U.S. So I think sanctuary is very important at this time. And, and, and some people say, well, are you talking about the immigration movement? Are you talking about sanctuary, the spiritual? It's the same. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't see it as the same, then we're just going to be hiding and then nothing changing, you know, because we don't change our values and beliefs and the way we look at each other and how we appear and who we are, and we don't know our story. We don't know the story. Mm-hmm. The whole story. So. One of the, um, I love your bringing in Dr. King into the book, uh, where you mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King's idea of the, quote, beloved community. And it's a place where you walk through the door and you are instantly hugged because mm-hmm. you are loved. Mm-hmm. And, like, ideally, maybe someday this country could be a place where people would walk in the door and be hugged. You know what I mean? That's like an amazing ideal to think about. Um, And if we extend the boundaries of beloved uh, community to the boundaries of our nation, or even Mm -hmm. just your state or my state, what are some of the things you feel the United States needs to do in order to become a true beloved sanctuary? Is it even possible? Yeah, it's possible if we've come awake to our own inter uh, interrelationships. So, Martin Luther King was talking about all people, not just black people. And he was talking about the nation. And he was talking about interrelationship of all beings, no different than any sage from India spoke about, because that's what he was studying. He was a philosopher. And so not just a Baptist preacher. And so people don't under, don't know that about him. And he was very uh, 
deep and, and wrote this book called Strength of Consciousness. And so in that book, he begins to talk about how we see each other and our perceptions of each other. And when those things change, then we can say and that everyone deserves a home. There should be no homeless people. There should be no homeless people, you know, on physical level. There should be no homeless people on a spiritual and emotional level. Because if we understand that we're interrelated, that, that if I could feel myself to be in relationship to you, to the earth, to the teachings, to everything, then I, I won't disregard it. I would see everything as sacred. Whether we have a hard time coexisting is one thing. But if we have that basis and that foundation of understanding that, you know, we, we know this when an earthquake happens, our bomb is dropped. Oh, everybody runs together. We're all together because we know not one is going to escape that. Well, not one of us are going to escape death either. And that's our interrelationship right there. That's our human dilemma that it's all changing and moving fast, you know. And so, um, yes, I think as a country, we can make this country a sanctuary you know, will it happen when we're alive? That's another question. One of the things that your book has like inspired me to do the last few days is I go on walks in my neighborhood with my dogs and sometimes I'll listen to headphones and I'll be like listening to a podcast or like an audio book or something. And what I've been doing lately is I've been leaving the headphones at home and I've been smiling at people and saying hello instead of being immersed in my internal world. And so I, I thought about that beloved sanctuary and beloved community concepts a lot for the last week and 10 days when I was reading the book. And I'm trying to change like behaviors a little bit so that I can feel more a part of a community instead of retreating inward, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a start. So when you're in the uh, waiting room, put your iPhone or whatever phone you got in the in your bag and sit. And I've done, I've done that before where everyone's on their phone in the waiting room and I'll take mine and put it in my bag and, and I just wait. And usually ne no one in that time lifts their eyes, you know, to say anything. But I always try to be available no matter what happens because it's a, one person has to be awake too, mm -hmm. <laughs> to the presence of the other. So that, you know, is very good to um, my father's from the South. My parents are from the South Louisiana. And so I was taught a long time ago, when you walk by somebody, you definitely acknowledge that life. It doesn't matter who it is, what it is. I mean, they're from the South and they were acknowledging the white people who are actually oppressing them. But that's not what comes up when you see a life, you just acknowledge, you don't get into the oppression of it. And, ignore, you know, so I was taught that early on to now that didn't mean, you know, you accept everything. It just means that you have the good sense to acknowledge this breath. You know, so I was taught that early on and my father tipped his hat and I would, you know, yank my head too, you know, because I learned how to do that. Then I got older and things, times changed and I kept doing it and it would, it would really hurt my feelings. You know, people didn't acknowledge it back. And then one woman said, do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Just anyway. So I want to be like that too. So if you're out yeah. there doing that in on your side and I'm going to try and do better on my side as well, you know, just yeah. be like, how can I make this community better in every single moment of every single day instead of, you know, just contributing to the shutting down? Exactly. Hmm. And so I told you earlier that I recently moved to a new place and my life is changing every day. I've felt sad and I felt happy and I felt lost and I felt gain and I felt excitement and everything. And then the line in your book, which says, quote, when suffering arises, there is a profound opportunity for transformation if there is willingness to stay a while. I just wanted to tell you that I love that line. Mm -hmm. I yeah. don't have a question about it, but I just wanted <laughs> to tell you that I loved it so much 
because um, as we go through these moments of transformation uh, and all these jarring life changes, that's such a really, really good way to think about life because you never know what you're going to learn if you just sit down and stay a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's difficult. It's difficult to, you know, our first reaction when we see fire is to run. But we don't know if that fire is the fire to destroy us or the fire to um, rejuvenate us, to warm us, the fire to see through. We don't know if it's the light, you know, yet until we're sitting there, you know. So if it's the one that's destroy you, yes, I imagine you should go. But you have to see and find out and kind of um, discern what, what fire is this? Is this the one that's going to really hurt me or is this the one in which I, I, I'm beginning to see something, something not only of myself, but of other people and the human condition that we all live with, you know. So. Well, um, Zenju Sensei, um, your book, Sanctuary, is uh, immensely rereadable. And I was telling uh, a few friends the other day, whenever I was reading it, I suggested it to a few people that I know. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is a slow burn. You need to go through this book and you need to take your time and you need to just sit in the lines. And there's so many amazing lines, so many fantastic and hilarious little anecdotes as well. The living room scene when you were a young girl with all the men sitting around, I was yeah. laughing. Yeah, It was so great. There's funny moments and amazing moments. And it's going to be a book that I'm going to reread again in my life. So uh, I just wanted to tell you that I loved it, and I think Great. that a lot of people should read it. Thank you. So where can people find you and your work if they want to know more about what you're up to? Well, I have a website, zenju.org, Z-E-N, like in Nancy, J-U.org, and pretty much you can see some of what I'm doing. I'm, a, I'm on a hiatus right now, because... Um, which is something I need to do is take some time away and just uh, really be, you know, within myself, even while I'm totally not alone because I live at Green Gulch. There's about 100 people (laughs) at Green Gulch, and it's um, quite the life and community, um, you know, as a teacher, you know, to be um, someone who's leading classes and doing Dharma talks. So that's still going on here, but mostly I'm, I'm in the midst of taking care of myself for a little while I believe in sabbaticals and hiatus. I, I always take them every year. And so, um, you know, I just try not to be fearful what that means, you know, you know, in turn, oh, you know, we're not going to lose my space, my place, or, you know, yeah. lose sight of everything. So, yeah. Last question. Can you tell the audience what the translation of your Dharma name is? Oh, okay. Yeah, Zenju. My whole Dharma name is Ekai. Ekai Zinju, and Ekai means wisdom of ocean, our ocean wisdom. And uh, Zenju means uh, complete tenderness. So it's not the Zen and Zen. So when you see Zen, it has like about 100 meanings. <laughs> but in my name, it means complete or total, you know, uh, tenderness. So the second name is the name in which you uh, practice. That's <laughs> not who you are. <laughs> First name is kind of like how the teacher sees you, you know, and yeah. the second name is the work. So, yeah, you work <laughs> on it till the day, you know, so you, if I took my name on so I could try and work on um, that complete tenderness that is very difficult with someone who's raised with so much uh, suffering and oppression in, in my life. Thank you so much, Zenju Sensei. Okay, thank you. 
Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>